Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Good afternoon. There's a hole in the middle of the room. It's very Buddhist. <clears throat> so welcome to the first day of practice together. Usually the first half a day is just uh, getting over being freaked out. And uh, then usually the first day is your body just figuring out how it's going to sit down. And then usually the second day is uh, being tired and actually feeling where your body really is. So just so you know what's coming, (laughs) tomorrow you'll be sore and tired. Isn't this place beautiful? Mm -hmm. So uh, Tara, welcome. Uh, She was stuck at the border, uh, forgot her passport. So I'm glad you could make it. And Derek, I hope you're feeling better. So uh, this beautiful space, the courtyard for walking, uh, the bells, the clackers, the food, each other, all these things we can use to wake up. And all of us, we really need to wake up because we've been sleeping mostly at our computers. For the first time this year, computers are starting to scare me. We give over so much memory to these tablets. And every time you do a new search, your mind, your brain, literally has to refresh. Every time you open a new page, your brain has to refresh. And we don't know how much glucose that uses up. We don't know the effect of that on little kids. So I think it's a radical thing to gather in a space like this and not use technology for eight days. And I don't usually address this on retreat, but I think nowadays it's really worth mentioning that there's a kind of a a fast or a detox or something that we should acknowledge when we come on a retreat like this. But you can see when you sit, your mind is Googling. (laughs) Googling images, Googling little movies. Googling violence, 
Googling comedy. And so because of all that pressure, waking up is a very delicate thing. The 13th century Zen master Dogen uh, says there are three things that spoil before they ripen. Fish eggs, mangoes, and the mind that wants to wake up. Isn't this true? Three things that spoil before they're ripe. Fish eggs, unless you're a connoisseur of caviar. Mangoes, pick them before they're ready. And um, the mind that really wants to wake up. We get little hints of it, and then we think that that's satisfactory, and then we just put it away. So just the fact that you've come on a retreat like this is really, really important. Find out who you are, or who you aren't. And some of you on this retreat will go through phases where maybe for the first few days, you just really need to use this space to just relax. And maybe you haven't even arrived here yet. And then some of you, you really might need to push yourself. And usually I joke here and say, however you just answered that, you're probably the opposite. So if your immediate response is, yeah, I really need to push myself, probably you're the one that needs to chill out on this retreat. And just to come into your body from the constant fantasies, which are always sabotaging what's actually going on in the present moment. What a tragedy to miss your life because you are watching a movie about yourself. And maybe you can see this on your meditation cushion. Or maybe you see it because there's no mirror in the bathroom. Or the mirror is really small. And the form is set up so that you're not paying attention to the movie that you've been making. We need to reduce stress so that we can get back to what's important. Get back to real values. And that's why it's so beautiful to practice as a community, because we're practicing the possibility of what an awakened community can look like. And also, as you sit, you'll open up to what the Buddha called dukkha. So in everyday life, we translate dukkha as suffering. The suffering of not getting what you want. The suffering of getting what you don't want. Suffering of loss. But in meditation practice, the way we define dukkha is opening up to what's ultimately impermanent. 
noticing sensations in the body, ultimately impermanent. Noticing all the thoughts moving through awareness, ultimately impermanent. Where did they go? All these sensations, all these thoughts. Lots of you have a physical yoga practice. And when you have a physical yoga practice, you can sometimes get overly identified with sensations. You can start to feel like all this is mine and that you're improving or getting somewhere. But when you sit, you don't breathe into sensations and explore them, or you don't stretch. You just sit and you feel the sensations as impermanent, as arising and passing away, and ultimately not self, which we'll talk more about as the retreat goes on. But you might open up to other impermanent phenomena. Uh, the Buddha has a sutta called Tears, in which he defines dukkha in a slightly different way. Let me read it. He says, uh, For a long time, you've experienced the death of a father, the death of a brother, the death of a sister, the death of a son, or the death of a daughter, or you've experienced the death of relatives. And you've experienced a loss of wealth, a loss through illness. And as you've experienced these things, weeping and wailing, because of being united with what is disagreeable and separated from what gives you pleasure, the stream of tears you've cried is more than the water in the four great oceans. I love that line. The stream of tears you've cried is more than the water in the four great oceans. All this is enough to begin to experience revulsion towards clinging to things. And it's enough to become less entangled in craving, and it's enough to want to be liberated. Does anybody have this experience? Most people, they hear teachings like this and they think it's so pessimistic, you know. But actually what the Buddha is saying that this, only pra this practice starts to work when you're not seeking after bliss anymore. And actually there's been enough tears that you don't want to cling anymore. You don't want to keep grasping. Or maybe to update this in more modern language, it's not just tears, but you've been through so much drama of emotional instability. Or you don't know how to balance your attention. Or you don't know how to be in relationship because you have no relationship with yourself. And after a while, this causes so much pain that you need to do something about it. When I was training in psychology, I studied with an incredible uh, maverick psychologist named James Hillman, and, uh, who just died a couple of years ago. <clears throat> and um, when he was a young man, he was a student of Carl Jung, 
And when Carl Jung died in Zurich, he basically handed the reins to James Hillman as a really young man. And apparently the first thing that Hillman did at the Jung Institute in Zurich is if people came to the institute and said, I want to study to be a therapist, or uh, back then they were called uh, um, analytical psychologists, I want to study to be an analyst, um, Hillman would ask them why, and if it was because they wanted a career change or they wanted to help people, he wouldn't let them in. But if they came to the door because they were in a lot of pain themselves, then they were immediately let into the program. I've always been touched by this, by this story. So to really value yourself, to be unconditional with yourself, when you're sitting, you have to value whatever is showing up. To be able to have contact with it, in a sustained way and to be close to it and the nice thing about having all this form and all of these people here is that everyone here is doing the practice including the trees including this building and they're helping us so that we can wake up to what's going on for us so we don't go straight to Google again and it's risky it's risky to be fully open to the possibility of valuing yourself. And how can you value other people if you can't also have value, give value to all the parts of ourselves? The person who's here who's terrified of being with other people or having a roommate or the one who's here who is so relieved to be with others There's so much karma. It's like if you have rivers going down a mountain. After five years, after ten years, after centuries, the rivers cut really deep grooves in the rock. And our minds are like this. We came into the world with really deep grooves. Some of them are genetic. We can't explain them. And some of them are from our family of origin. And maybe we have a kind of sense of them. And with the combination of the sitting and the walking and being with others and eating together, chanting, uh, all of these patterns will start to come to the surface and you'll be able to look at them. But we're going to look at them differently than how we look at them day to day is that day-to-day -day when something arises, we Google the problem. And I don't mean literally we Google it. I mean internally, we go, how can I understand this? Where is this from? Why is this happening to me? But in this practice, with our breathing and with open ears, we listen to what's going on, we feel what's going on with an unconditional presence. And this is the most important thing, to be unconditional with whatever is showing up in each moment. And I feel like in an era where there's so much self-judgment, one of the most profound things anybody here can do is to be unconditional with yourself.
to let yourself really have your experience. Oh, I can't walk as fast as everyone's walking. And just last year I could walk as fast as everyone's walking, so I'm walking in a different area. And you'd be unconditional with that. And watch the mind that goes, oh, maybe I'm not as enlightened. I'm sitting in a chair. I have to sit in a chair. You know, it's a funny thing about this practice because, like, if someone from another tradition, like if a rabbi came in or something and they looked at us in the hall, they would think, oh, this is such a mystical thing. Everyone's, like, in some deep level of concentration. The room's really, really still. But, like, if you opened up everybody's (laughs) head, you know, you'd really see that actually what we're opening to is the mystical experience of the present moment, which is learning how to make what's showing up sacred, just through a shift in your attitude, to be more loving, more kind, more compassionate, more unconditional, with your experience. Which is ultimately impermanent. So not meditating from the place of the ego. I'm going to get somewhere. Or I'm not getting somewhere. I like this, I don't like this. Has anyone seen this in their mind yet today? Oh, I like this. Oh, I don't like this. I like this. I don't like this. And this oscillation, this flickering. But it doesn't matter. If your ego is doing all this, I like it, I don't like it, this part's good, that part's good, oh, look at the way they bow, I'm really good at bowing now, it's amazing, I can almost (laughs) bow like Rose. Maybe I'll be more like Rose. Want to be less like Rose? <laughs> your ego is like the child of your personality. And so you have to just be like, you have to be like, there, there. <laughs> there, there, love. <laughs> and when your ego goes off into stories as you're sitting, you do the same thing with, that you would do with a child. Like if you had a little kid, and they were going close to the water over there, you would go grab them by the hand and you'd say, no, 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 come back. And you bring them back again. Maybe some people can read a book and wake up and they're done. I have never met anyone who can do this. But I think for most of us, we see that we need to do this as a moment-to-moment practice. So one of the things I'd really like you to explore in this retreat is to make practice continuous. Because you'll notice probably even today, there's times where you start to sort of get into the zone. You're, you're there, you're opening the door, you're noticing the trees, and then you're just gone somewhere. So what we want to try and do for the eight days is to train in moment-to-moment, continuous, seamless practice. So whatever mind state shows up, we still have a continuous practice within that mental state. 
And mental states are like national parks. You know the national park system? National park in Labrador, few in Ontario, right? And so every national park has like its own flora, its own fauna, its own geography, its own climate or microclimate. And our moods are like this, right? Every mood we get into has its own geography, its own landscape, its own pitfalls, its own high places, its own low places. And so whenever a mood comes in, you just see it as a national park. Like, oh, here is the national park of anxiety. <laughs> Here's the national park of fear. And then, which is the theme of the retreat, is to also recognize that some national parks are not worth spending any time in anymore at all. And that's why we shouldn't be afraid of using the word liberation. Because there are some states that are worth being liberated from. Some states are called kushala, and some are called akushala. Kushala etymologically refers to a kind of grass, where when you hold the grass, it's very sharp on the edges, and it will cut you. Very popular for making carpets, for making natural fiber carpets. They use kushala grass. It kind of looks like hemp. You ever see hemp being grown? Anyways, um, uh, so kushla is is a is a a mental state where as you hold it, you can cut yourself. And akushala is the opposite. So usually the way kushala is defined is wholesome, and akushala is unwholesome. And when I first heard the words wholesome and unwholesome, I really I didn't like those terms. They sounded so puritanical, you know, Victorian kind of. But actually what it means is mental states where you can see the whole and mental states where you can't see the whole. Where when you're in that national park, there's a sense of the whole. Does this make sense? So on this retreat, we're going to be uh, looking at a text. And usually on silent retreat, we're just silent. But the past few years, sometimes on retreats, I've given people a text to look at. And after the talk today, it'll be handed out. Um, <clears throat> no, of course I didn't bring it with me. Does it? Does it? Do you, do you want to grab grab it, Sophia? It's in the office. Maybe you can even bring the whole staff. It's an un, unprepared t- teacher. The text is called the Dveda Vitaka Sutta. Uh, Dve means two. For those of you Ashtanga yogis, Dve means forward folding second position. Uh, Vitaka uh, um, is Pali. Vitarka is the word in Sanskrit. Um, And it's synonymous with another Sanskrit word that's common is Vichara. Um, And uh, it means uh, etymologically means to, to, to walk around somewhere. 
it's continuing the theme of the national park. To, to go into the national park and to be able to walk around and to explore. So that's why sometimes translators translate it as thinking, but it's important to know that it's not just thinking about something or conceptualizing about something. It's being able to walk around in that zone. Does this make sense a little bit? Yeah. So the Buddha says that in meditation practice, it's important to see that our thoughts can actually be separated into two different bundles, two different places where we can walk around. Uh, Here's what he says. This is from a text. Uh, How many of you, just a show of hands, are familiar with the Pali Canon? Uh, A little bit. So I should just say, uh, after the Buddha died, his um, closest friend, his name was Ananda, Uh, was asked what the Buddha taught. And Ananda had memorized, because he had been the Buddha's attendant for almost 50 years, and had memorized what the Buddha said. And about 400 years later, um, all of the teachings were put down, um, codified, uh, in suttas, or the Sanskrit is sutras. Um, But for 400 years, they were memorized. And it's interesting, uh, scholarship is showing some really interesting things about this these days, which is the original teachings went to Sri Lanka um, that were codified, and then another set went to China. The ones that went to Sri Lanka are called the Pali Canon, and the ones that went to China are called the Agamas. And it's really interesting that those two texts that grew up in completely different places are almost exactly the same. And that's really good for us Westerners to remember because we are really into the printed word as like the final thing. But it might be possible that the oral tradition is more accurate (laughs) than the printed word, I think. Maybe that's for another talk. You know, like there's this, uh, I forgot the name of the book that was just written by this autistic kid uh, from England. He, He... Uh, can recite off by heart 40,000 numerical digits of pi. Yeah, and it takes him all day. And he closes his eyes, he follows his breathing, and then he starts seeing colors, and in the colors are all the numbers. 40,000 digits of pi all day. And pi is a little different than memorizing like a story, because there isn't like a logic in it, in the same way there is in a story. It's, an, it's, it's a numerical placement. So anyways, the Buddha's teachings were remembered, and um, they were written down in a language called Pali. Pali, um, the Buddha never spoke Pali. The Buddha spoke a language called Prakrit. Um, Prakrit comes from the word Prakriti, which means natural. And Sanskrit, the word Sanskrit means uh, to polished or constructed. So Sanskrit is a constructed language used by the upper classes. And Pali was more of a natural language that people would speak. No one ever spoke Sanskrit. So anyways, the Pali canon was, was brought together after the Buddha's death in this language. 
So that's why at the beginning of the text it says, thus have I heard. That's Ananda saying, this is what I heard the Buddha say. That was a bit of a long way of going about saying that. (laughs) Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was living at Savati in Jeddah's grove, Anatta Pindika's park. So this would be in a grove of trees, um, probably maybe a kilometer away from a city. There he addressed the monks, bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied, and then he said, Before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me. So he's talking about before he had his experience of awakening. Suppose that I divide my thoughts into two categories. I set on one side thoughts of sensual craving, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, and thoughts of non-cruelty. So this is a, a really profound thing. So imagine this. He's, you know, in his, probably his late 20s, and he says to himself, what if when I'm looking at my mind, I divide my thoughts, and I see that Some thoughts are thoughts that have uh, uh, sensual craving in them. So that's when um, there's something there and you go, do you know what I'm talking about? I have to have that. You see something beautiful, I need that for me. Or I don't want that. Aversion. It's interesting, the word for aversion in Sanskrit, dvesha, is the same word for anger. I don't want that, very quickly, also becomes anger. And thoughts of ill will. How many of you today have, have had thoughts of cruelty in your meditation practice? Yeah. Not very many people put their hand up. I don't believe you. (laughs) It can be very fine, a thought of cruelty. It can just be like, I'm never going to get this. Or I'm not good at this. Or, Or my body is not how it should be. And then he says... As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of sen- so as he had this thought, a thought of sensual craving arose in me. I understood this thought of sensual craving has arisen in me. I should just stop there. When a thought of craving arises in you, you have to see that this is a thought of craving arising. Does this make sense? Do you, do you know what I mean by this? Like it's not just, oh, there's the thought of craving, no, no, no. You have to see that that's a thought of craving. If you just watch your thoughts, 
So a lot of people do this. Oh, I'm just watching my thoughts. They're coming and going. But the problem with thoughts of craving <coughs> is that if you're just watching them, they multiply. So if you watch thoughts of craving, they're like Hydra's head. They keep one gives birth to another, gives birth to another, because the thing that craving loves the most is more craving. So to notice the craving and, 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 and label it, know it, here's craving. It doesn't have to be my craving, but just craving. Here's craving. Then the thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. So this is what he noticed. A thought of, of sensual craving arises, and he thinks, this, this me- mental state of grasping, of craving, no matter what it's about, and you should keep in mind that in, in Buddhist psychology, there are six senses, not five. The mind is considered a sense. So when we say sensual craving, it's not just like for more chocolate. I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) But it can also just be for more fantasies, more thoughts, good or bad ones. And when the craving is going, then the Buddha realizes this leads to my own affliction. And this leads to the affliction of others and both. In other words, when you're sitting and you can't work with the mental states that are arising, it affects you, but it also affects everybody else around you. Maybe you came here because you feel like, you know, my life really needs some work. Or I'm asleep. But maybe you don't see that clearly, how the craving that's repetitive, the karma of craving in your life, how it affects other people. And maybe on the retreat you might see that a little bit. There's only so much food. You take too much food, it's less for somebody else. There's only so much money. If you need so much money, it's less money for other people. So we have to be able to work with craving. Then the Buddha says, it obstructs wisdom, causes difficulty, and leads away from Nibbana, which is the Pali word for Nirvana. So when craving is there, it obstructs Nirvana. It obstructs freedom. And it keeps us going around in samsara, meaninglessness. And creates an aridity in the mind a dryness, a dullness, a repetitiveness. In, in, in uh, uh, Pali, there's no word for boredom. Uh, 
which is kind of strange. You'd think someone was bored once, probably even 2,500 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but the word that gets used a lot is this term arid. A mind that's arid is a kind of inner death where there's space for all the wrong things to float around like ghosts. And the opposite is a mind that's fertile and awake. And the Buddha is saying, how do you have an awake mind? When sensual craving arises, just know it's there. Because if it starts multiplying, this is going to lead to your own affliction. But most of us were so addicted to just having fantasies of pleasure, even if the pleasure is never going to come. We have our own little story that we play in, that we participate in, that we protect. So that's why I say, sit still. And open up your ears. And notice sounds. And let your breath be in the background. And today, this is how we're going to practice. It's such a great environment to practice because the windows are open. And if you pay attention to sound... you'll notice that as soon as craving exists, you can't hear the sound. Have you, been, have you been noticing this? Like as soon as you really get going with the craving, you don't hear anything anymore. Maybe it's happening right now as I'm speaking. <laughs> You're off on some really good thought, you know. Better than whatever I'm saying. <laughs> but nothing is better than what those trees are saying. And if you pay attention to sound, um, it's not out there. And it's also not happening inside you. And it's worth just feeling that. And that's why one of the instructions I gave this morning was to see if you can notice sound without language. Did anybody hear me say that? I hope you heard me say that. And some of you are coming on retreat with all kinds of problems. In your personal life, your financial life, your career, your relationships. Um, In these days of sitting, you don't have to work them out. You don't have to find an answer to your troubles. Instead, we're going to take a totally different approach. And we're just going to stay focused on the present moment. I looked around a few times this morning during sitting, and some of you looked like you were like just about to work out a problem. <laughs> I can see it in your face and your breathing. Almost there. Like you're memorizing pie for a contest. There is a split in all of us between me and experience. 
and there's a place of contact between me and experience. But we're usually really far away from that space of contact. I call that space of contact religious feeling. When you're so close to the sound, that's the contact. There's just the sound of the trees. They're not, it's not even the sound of the trees. It's just what's happening before the mind can get a hold of it. And we want to be able to touch that and sustain that attention. And the enemy of that religious feeling is craving. Craving for things to be different than they are. you're writing this down. So let's use this time to wake up and and to, to make a life that's true. your attention is not balanced, how do you make a decision about anything? How do you have an intention that's clear? How can you be intentional when your attention is imbalanced all the time? That leads to premature transcendence, which is trying to get out of what you don't like. But that's not the heart of the practice. So. <clears throat> um, when I'm on retreat, I have a practice every day of writing a poem. So I usually like to end talks with a little poem. They're meant to encourage you. It's about you. We sit together humid, humid with each other, humid with our bruised hearts, and Google Minds. Now we're away from searches, images, videos, Google, Google, Google. The sky at night when we are looking, the wires in the sky in the night when we are looking, the stars in the night in the sky, the stars in the wire, wires and Google in our minds. We are looking, but we're not looking. Our lovers are right in front of us. Our children are right in front of us. A pregnant woman is right in front of you. Other people's children are staring at us. It's all right in front of us, in front of you, in front of me, the world, the world that is us. 
Minds and bodies are not problems to figure. Go figure. Your figure, my figure. I love the figures in the room when we sit. I love the sky at night, the wires, the broken wires, the stars, the squirrels, the birds, the rabbits. Fewer birds because nobody's looking. They don't come out anymore. Neither do seashells or bears. If we sit in the zendo long enough, bears will return. Then seashells. But most of us cannot stay with anything long enough. There's just Google. We sit together, the wires and the stars and the sky, all those stores filled with things for wanting, all those wires and windshields and dry tears, your heart cut open, the wires hanging out, your guts finally giving themselves up, holding yourself together. But holding yourself too tight is the opposite of love. The opposite of love. Choosing, 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 and we're left only with the opposite of love. We are in need, and you can see the need everywhere you look. Our parents are getting dementia. Our bodies, cancer. Our cancer has, we have, we all have dementia. You sit, you temple, you mountain, you sky. To be a person is a very beautiful thing. To be a person is a very beautiful thing. You don't have to light candles and incense. You just need to feel in your whole body the opposite of love. You need to feel with your whole body how much you can hate someone. You need to feel with your whole body how distracted you can be. You need to feel with your whole body what happens when you can't love yourself. You need to see with your whole body how easy it is to be indifferent. You need to feel with your whole body, your whole body, everybody's pain. And then you're ready to practice. When I felt this, when I felt the opposite of love, I swore. And I beat things up. And I didn't eat right. You know, you know exactly what I'm saying when I say, I beat things up and I could not eat. I was only looking at you, Google. Everything I treated as a reflection. Anyways, I'm talking about the first time I sat still. The first time I really sat still. The first time I let myself belong to myself. Thank you. We have 30 minutes until dinner. I really encourage you to use the next 30 minutes to just sit and contemplate 
anything from the talk that touched you. And if there's anything in the talks throughout the week that don't resonate, just don't think about them. But if there's one thing that, oh yeah, I can connect with that, then really just let that inhale that in. Let it in like a tick. (laughs) 